The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. And once you sell your shares to the public, it, it's gone forever, right? So you can't, can't get it back. And, and there's an irony in, in your question. And, and that question, you know, is interesting because we're private equity, right? We, we value the, the ability to be private uh, for our companies. And we own 175 of them. And we like them uh, to be private uh, for a long time sometimes because you think long term. You can be more nimble. You can do things that are driven by your alignment with your investors and, and your own stakeholders. And so, you know, to me... Um, all those things apply to alternative assets. That was John Connerton, co-managing partner of private equity firm Bain Capital, explaining why his firm hasn't followed rivals like Blackstone and Apollo Global Management into pursuing a listing. He explains how different types of asset managers are moving apart strategically and the advantages Bain sees in the private markets. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Jonathan Guilford, a columnist at Reuters Breaking Views. This week, I'm joined by John Connerton, who has been with Bain for nearly four decades as the private equity firm amassed $180 billion in assets under management. We discussed how the industry is stratifying, whether the dour M&A cycle is turning, when banks will jump back into the buyout game, and whether there will be a shakeout among managers. Listen on to hear our conversation. So, John, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. So I'm really glad to have you on to chat private equity because I mean, you've been with Bain Capital nearly as long as I've been alive. You joined back in 89. You were promoted to managing director in 97. You kind of rose up uh, towards your current position in 2011. Uh, and it feels like each of those dates really landed in what were very different eras for private equity. In particular, you know, we've now seen the rise of the big publicly listed managers, starting with, you know, Fortress and Blackstone back in 07, and then the flowering of all these different strategies under the broader umbrella of so-called alternative asset management. Bain obviously stands a little bit apart from that in terms of still being private. But what I wanted to start off with is a really simple question. When you look back at all these changes and you're thinking about where we are now, what actually is private equity in 2024? Well, it's, it's a great question. I, I think there's there's kind of the simple answer, and then there's the, the more nuanced version of it as, as time has passed. I think, you know, from the very beginning, it's a very simple concept, um, you know, that we started with, and, and frankly, the industry, which is, you know, being long-term, which the uh, public markets are not, uh, you know, being able to be active in our governance approach, uh, which means we're trying to support the company, uh, and uh, and drive long-term results, uh, and then ultimately using yes, uh, lower cost of capital as part of being in a private context. These are all virtues that I think remain core to uh, the private equity business across cycles, across uh, the forty years of our our firm. Uh, what I think has gotten different, or or better, or more interesting, is that the tools that we have uh, to be able to add more value to have more insight into the world, into the verticals that we participate in, um, into the intricacies of capital structures and capital formation. Uh, these are things that through cycles, and we've had four big cycles in the course of the last 40 years, we've gotten better and better at. Um, and that's why, you know, we're a global enterprise. We, you know, we're in four continents. We have 21 offices. You know, we're in 13 strategies. We're in uh, multiple verticals. Um, we have huge teams to support uh, both, uh, you know, value creation uh, on a sustained basis with our companies, but also specialists uh, who can really add value in particular areas of different verticals. So 
you know, every every cycle we've been, uh, you know, people say it's the end of the golden age, but but my sense is we're only three uh, percent of all equity under management is in in private hands, and the rest is in public equity. And we have, with those virtues and with those capabilities, a long long way to go. Right, and I mean, you talk about you know the end of the golden era, and I think you know all of us have seen the comments from folks like Mark Rowan, uh, various other people throughout the industry, kind of talking about what has been changing in private equity. And essentially, the message seems similar, that the game is tougher than it has been, that rising rates, uh, you know, caused a rethink of what does deal cadence look like? What do valuations look like? And, you know, if you get down to brass tacks and you say, okay, private equity is at its core, buying and selling businesses, there were fewer businesses bought and sold last year. I mean, has anything fundamentally changed about that core business? Or is this just kind of part of that cycle? Like you kind of mentioned four cycles there. Like, is this just a kind of turn and return? Or has something actually changed? Yeah, no, I don't, I don't, I actually don't think uh, anything, you know, has changed in a secular sense. I mean, I think that if you look at 89, which was, you know, probably the the peak of the peak uh, during the barbarians at the gate period, if you look at 99, with all the telecom uh, activity that, that existed then, I think if you look at 2007 with all the big pre-GFC buyouts, and then if you look at 2022 and 21, I mean, these are all peak periods, but if you look through and just average out the growth in the business, it's grown at 15% over 40 years, and it's gone from, again, 1% of all equity under management to three. And, and so from my standpoint, um, we are going through a cycle, and this has been a particularly acute cycle. And, and you said we're in the business of buying and selling businesses. My hope is that it's, it's more than that. Um, you know, it's about buying businesses, you know, operating them, hopefully inflecting the growth trajectory or the strategic positioning of a business, which is what we're known for, um, and then ultimately making it a better business so that when we sell it, uh, we've done something uh, to improve it along the way. I, th I think, frankly, since the GFC, there's been far too much just buying and selling assets. It, it became a bit of a trader's market where, you know, you buy high, you sell higher. And a lot of that was fueled by central bank, uh, you know, easing and, and lower rates and, and tech. And, and sort of from my standpoint, we're back to fundamentals. And I think as it relates to fundamentals, I think the, the industry has a lot of prospects to continue to drive, drive a lot of value. Right. And I think that's a crucial thing, right? Because when you talk to people in the industry, I mean, nobody wants to kind of articulate it as, oh, you were buying at one multiple of EBITDA or cash flow or whatever, and then six months later, all of a sudden, everybody was valuing it at a turn or two higher multiple. Like, people don't necessarily want to articulate it as that, but you talk to people inside firms, and they were saying, after we got the rate rise cycle, oh yeah, our models have changed. We used to be modeling that we would be able to sell at a higher valuation for you know the same business down the road, and that is no longer what we're doing. Obviously, practices change at different firms, but I mean, is that something that kind of weighs on your decision making? Is that something that weighs on your kind of committee process when some partner is kind of presenting a deal? Is it something that has like changed the math of what can work for you guys? Or is it something that's sort of on the margins? Well, I mean, look, exit multiples incredibly important. Um, and I think you have to be mindful where you are. There have been valuation cycles before. Um, we had one in, in, you know, in the GFC period, again, back in 99, even in 89. Um, so you have to ha take a view around where normalized multiples 
will be. I, I think our true north is unlevered value for growth. And, and so from our standpoint, what we saw from 18 to 21 was people were paying huge premiums for the, for the same growth rate uh, that they would have paid a much lower price for in 15, 16. Um, and so, you know, when we looked at doing deals in, in 19, 20, and 21, we looked at exit multiples that were going to contract, not, not expand. Um, and so from our standpoint, we've always had to take a view um, around multiples, depending where you are in the valuation cycle. That puts a lot of pressure on the only other variable that, that can matter, which is earnings growth. And, and so from, from our standpoint, the true north that we have is can we, you know, grow our earnings in, in the relevant sectors that we're in at maybe two times or three times the, the growth rate for that industry. Um, and, and we've done that. Um, and so from, from our standpoint, when we, we look at how we do our business, it has to be driven by earnings growth ultimately in order to make uh, returns over cycles. And, but you need to be mindful of multiples because they do affect your outcomes. And they were a big tailwind, frankly, from 13 to 21, for sure. Right. And I presume that as that turns into a headwind, right, that's part of the story that we've seen in terms of, you know, we can look at the listed folks, we can see the collapse in A, deployment, but also B, those guys realizing their their investments, right, like actually getting to the point of a sale. And, you know, you get that change in the timing cycle of when you can actually pull money from investors, put that in, and then realize that cash. And we've seen all kinds of stuff resulting from that, right? We've seen folks putting assets into secondary and continuation funds. We've seen, you know, you and I have both read a lot of stories about LP cash pressure and, you know, investors feeling the need to have money returned to them. I mean, do you think that drives anything that we've seen in terms of how some of the bigger folks are maybe changing their approach to capital raising or changing their approach to, I guess, how they think about deal making? Like, I wonder when you're sitting at the table and you're a counterparty in a negotiation, like, how does it change things for you? A, like when that negotiation is with, you know, a firm that you're looking to buy or with um, uh, a counterparty you're looking to sell to. And then B, also kind of when you're talking on the other side of it, on the capital raising side, when you're talking to LPs, um, when you're thinking about like how you raise capital. I'm just wondering about the effects there. Well, I mean, first, again, going back to, to cycles um, and, and at least my experience of the patterns that occur, you know, in periods of dislocation, you know, I think you generally have a credit bubble. You know, a credit bubble that leads to a valuation peak. Um, it leads to a velocity increasing a lot because when you pay higher prices, people want to sell you more stuff. Uh, and then it all comes crashing down, and generally there's a recession. Um, and I think, by the way, that's happened, you know, in very acute ways four times, again, over the course of the last 40 years. And I think 21, 22, 23, I think you're seeing that same pattern. And, and really what happens is um, the market gets frozen in the aftermath of that peak. Uh, because people are nostalgic about 21 prices. They're wondering when the credit markets will come back, the, the Fed pivots that everybody talks about. Everybody wants to believe in hope. And then over time, you realize you got a bunch of assets, and hope is going to be a little bit more sober than perhaps you uh, would like to believe it would be. And as a result of that, things stabilize. Credit markets uh, come back. Um, you know, recessions are either in hindsight or maybe not as severe. Uh, and buyers and sellers begin to capitulate to some form of the middle of where transactions should happen. And I think we're seeing that. I think that really accelerated in our business over the course of 
uh, the last six months, we, we saw a big uptick in our new transaction activity for all the reasons I just described, at very different price points, at very different uh, values for unit of growth uh, that we haven't seen, frankly, since, you know, perhaps back to 14, 13, uh, you know, 2013, 14 levels. And so, and I think it's going to hopefully continue from here. Um, it's hard to know exactly, but at least we're seeing the momentum of travel of that pattern that I've talked about uh, occurring again in this cycle. You know, as it relates to investors, you know, we raised, you know, our Europe fund and our Asia fund above our target levels. They understand that this is a business you need to think long term and, and you know, they want to deploy capital at this part of the cycle, not, not in 20 and 21. Um, you know, people, it was the perfect storm, right? I mean, people were raising twice the size funds that they had from the prior fund they raised two years before. They were deploying it in a year. Um, and so a lot of investors got caught, particularly when the public markets traded off and, and the denominator of their alt position, the percentage in alts, was, was way too high. Uh, but that's all normalized. The denominator's back. Um, you know, while they haven't had the distributions, the capital calls have slowed down. Um, and so, you know, a lot of these, uh, you know, endowments and pension funds are thinking they need to think about the next two years to make sure, you know, as the liquidity comes back um, and as the activity picks up, they, they don't want to be out of the market. Got it. And I think we see from some of the other managers, right, there's, I don't know if you would necessarily call it hedging, or you would call it an evolution, but there are different ways that they're approaching the kind of capital question, right, and different ways that they're packaging the strategy of what they're doing in private equity. You just saw, you know, Blackstone just launched its big retail fund in private equity, you have, you know, kind of KKR doing the the core P strategy that they've got with their kind of dividend growers. And it seems like just from where I'm sitting, A, obviously, you do have, like you say, the tail end of that cycle to work out in terms of uh, velocity of capital from LPs. But also B, it's like maybe like a slightly changing consideration of what is it we want our capital base to look like. And I'm just trying to think through like, what are the incentives there? Is this just like an epiphenomenon of the end of the cycle? Is this something that is a bigger point of departure between various firms. Like when you're sitting at Bain, like how do you think about that? And how do you think about like whether these different kind of strategies that you're seeing, especially like the listed old managers pursue, like is that something that you comp yourself to or is that something that you stand apart from? Uh, well, there's two different things I think you're describing there. I think one is just um, what is natural, which is the penetration of different you know pools of capital into the alt asset space. I mean, I think that... You know, when we first started out, it was, you know, high net worth and, and sovereigns and endowments, right? And then pensions got in the game, um, and they increased their amounts. And then, you know, over time, now we're seeing a broader set of high net worth in retail. So to me, I think it is the natural course of travel for the percentage of alts, because it's a great space, um, the percent to be uh, larger than it is, you know, across the board. And, and we're still seeing that penetration curve. Um, not just in retail, but 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 also um, you know even in in pension funds around the world, and and there's a lot of money and growth in sovereign wealth funds as well. So, to me, I think that's a capital raising strategy that just is trying to seek a, a broader and more diversified pool of of capital to support um, you know our strategy and their strategies. So, but the second point you're making is I think a more interesting one, which is is there segmentation. Um, going on behind the scenes. You know, we all talk about who, private equity, but, um, you know, there are different strategies. I mean, some people are looking to um, what I'll, I'll call, you know, private equity light. Um, they're not focused on the heavy lifting of, 
of driving transformation, of, of really be, being deep inside the companies to generate premium returns. They're, they're actually trying to buy high-quality assets, govern them well, um, and make perhaps a more modest return, but a good return relative to the public markets. And I think that's what we're seeing, some of the segmentation that we're going, that's going on in the marketplace. That, that is, in fact, what, uh, what I think will continue to be the case. Um, and by the way, that will come with different fee structures. You know, you're already seeing why a lot of the big sovereign wealth funds, they want to have free co-investment because some of that, you know, that lighter version of private equity is not generating the kind of high returns that justify, you know, the kinds of structures that historically our industry has had. Our, our focus really is on that premium end. It's one of the reasons why we haven't sought just to be the biggest fund or, you know, or to have the absolute velocity every year. We're, we're trying to generate... Uh, significant premium returns driven by significant operating and strategic change. And I think that part of the business is still very robust. I mean, I do think we're getting better and better at that as an industry. I think we're getting better and better as a, as a firm. Um, and frankly, there's just, <laughs> there will always be lots of, you know, poorly managed public companies or founder companies that could use our support. That, you know, my 40, 40, 40 years in our, in our history and 35 years at the firm, you know, I haven't seen any shortage of businesses that need help. Got it. And I mean, is that, that segmentation, is that something that attracts different scales of players? Because like you say, the sovereign funds are kind of thinking about, oh, do we want to get in on a, on a kind of headline equity co-invest? So is it those kind of big check, big weighty kind of equity piece deals that are going to those sort of, we just want to own like the quality cash flow and maybe it's not about the heavy lifting or, or getting the hair off of one of these assets? Or am I misunderstanding that? No, I mean, look, there's a, high, there's a higher correlation of, of, of scale deals and those deals that perhaps have higher, higher quality and therefore maybe uh, underwrite to a different risk return. And, but I don't, there's plenty of large, you know, you know, screwed up companies, uh, let's say. Um, and by the way, it's not just hair. I mean, I, I shouldn't say that. You know, there are a lot of businesses that really just need resources. I mean, managing supply chain dislocation in, the, in 2024, you know, managing the global geopolitical risks that are associated with an asset that needs to get uh, acquisitions through different regulatory bodies, you know, managing a, a huge carve out, you know, from a big business. These are all th things that I think, um, you know, could be very scale. Um, and I have been very scale. As, as you know, we've done things like Kyoshia. We've done a bunch of Japanese carve-outs. Uh, we just announced a huge deal uh, in the Nordics. Um, you know, so these businesses are good businesses, but we can accelerate their growth through the resources and, and footprint that we have to uh, drive value. So, so to me, um, you know, what I'm talking about is, yeah, a lot of these businesses that don't want to be public, high-quality businesses, perhaps don't need that type of support or acceleration. Yeah, they 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 should be in private forms and long-term hands, and, and that's probably a better way to manage them than, than dealing with, you know, you know, quantitative trading mechanisms that are driving your quarterly results that creates all this volatility in the public markets. It, it isn't healthy, I think, for, you know, for the long-term building of, of, of even quality businesses that have, have a more linear trajectory than, than what I'm describing that, that we try to accomplish. Got it. I, mean, I guess what I'm trying to get at, right, and, and like you say, there's been a there is this kind of law of the larger managers have the ability to do what you're describing to navigate all of those issues like not only in management but like you say getting to a close um and it's interesting because 
you kind of think, okay, the story has been, oh, limited partners are pruning relationships. The great mass of fundraising is migrating to fewer players. It's like a power law story effectively, right? Like the big get bigger. But we've also seen maybe some reduced fundraising aspirations for some of the flagship funds, the biggest guys. We've seen like private and monoline private equity players really get like particularly aggressive and on top of that, you know, you see like maybe a slight renaissance in say mid-market fundraising. So like what is actually happening there? Is that some sort of splitting apart of the way that like uh, private guys like you are focusing on the market versus the public guys? Is this just a kind of natural rotation among like what LPs are doing? Like what's driving that? Well, look, I think, I mean, it's, it's I'm sure pretty obvious to you and I'm sure it's been well discussed that, you know, your utility function as a listed entity, first and foremost, is to be driven by AUM accumulation. And, and that's obviously not just private equity, uh, although, you know, clearly the scaling up of private equity is part of what uh, we've seen in, in, in these listed entities. Um, and sort of the diminishing, uh, you know, return, you know, function of getting bigger and bigger in private equity, you know, is, is possibly a challenge for those firms, but they are also driven by getting fees off those uh, larger funds, and and they serve a, another master, which is a public shareholder, will pay them really handsomely for that um, with with you know a, a nice multiple. And I think, frankly, I don't think that's driving their private equity businesses. I still think they're good at what they do. That's one of the reasons why we've all survived for four decades. Uh, you know, the, you know, there are people that come and go in in these decades, but there are the large listed players and ourselves that have been around for that entire period. I think what's really driving them. Uh, is outside of private equity. It's it's really driving towards you know the fee driven you know highly scalable asset classes like credit, um, like real estate and soon to be infrastructure. I, I, so that that's sort of a bigger driver I think of the listed entities today versus you know sort of the private equity business. I, in fact, some of them even said it's like I mean maybe you, you've actually referenced this that they don't even think of you know private equity as their core business anymore. And I mean, does that make it uh, different when you're sitting at the table, when you're chasing after a deal and maybe, you know, one of these folks are in the bidding process as well? Or is it that you are just beginning to look at different kinds of deals? Like, I wonder, like, what difference does that make in the market? Because if everybody begins to gravitate towards, okay, maybe private equity, you know, still runs on that kind of same incentive structure, but it does feel like folks are trying to, the list of folks are trying to find a way to fit them into the box of looking more like something that can generate off that steady fee structure, right? And over time, you would expect that to change the incentive structures of what they're doing on the ground in terms of investing. I mean, for you as Bain, like when you're looking at this and your decision tree, right? And I know you, everybody else in the firm has been asked a million times, like, why are you guys still private? Why are you guys still private? Like, is this is this something where it's like over time you expect some kind of advantage in the way that you're actually pursuing your investments? Yeah, I've been asked that question a lot, um, you know, it, you know probably every week since 2008. <laughs> um, interesting, by the way, all this went public that time. They probably wish they hadn't gone public so early, right, because they're a lot bigger. And, and, and once you sell your shares to the public, it, it's gone forever, right? So you can't, can't get it back. Um, and, and there's an irony in, in your question. And, and that question, you know, is interesting because we're private equity, right? We, we value the, the ability to be private uh, for our companies, and we own 175 of them, and we like them uh, to be private, uh, for a long time, sometimes because you think long term, you can be more nimble. You can do things that are driven by your alignment with your investors and and your own stakeholders. And so, 
you know, to me, um, all those things apply to alternative assets. I mean, I think we we like to be nimble. We've we've added nine strategies over the last uh, eight years. Uh, we've tripled in size over the last ten years. Uh, you know, we've uh, have a balance sheet. Um, you know, which is is very powerful for aligning uh, with our investors because we're investing it in our own strategies. Um, and and so all these things that I hear about, you know, why not go public? I mean, it's it, it's it's ironic, right? Because I think all these things we can do at private, and we can focus on just one stakeholder, which is our investors uh, and our and our partnership. And and so it it has not precluded us in in growing the ways we want to grow, um, and it has not at all been a disadvantage. In fact, the fact that we have 100% of our economics that we can reinvest in our partnership and our business, um, I think gives us a great deal of advantage. Now, look, Goldman was private a long, long, long time before they went public, but it wasn't until they found that it was a disadvantage for them that they did. Um, and so right now, I don't see that uh, as being a disadvantage. If anything, you know, it's it's an advantage. I That's kind of an interesting comparison, right? Because if you look at what people say about, for instance, private credit, and, you know, obviously you guys uh, have your focus, but like a Blackstone or a KKR or whoever else, like you say, you have a balance sheet, you are in credit, you are in all these other strategies. But it feels like a lot of these pieces have kind of moved out of the banks. Obviously, post GFC, you get a lot of that kind of, I guess, what we would call alts like business that moved out of there. And now they're kind of trying to rebuild. You have the credit folks who I think, um, you know, uh, repeated refrain you'll hear is that it's kind of reinventing almost like the old merchant banking. I mean, are you, do you conceive yourself as being part of that larger story? I don't want to call it debanking maybe, but like the migration of capital elsewhere that like begins to mimic some of these old things that we saw in like the big universal banking centers. Like, is that something you conceive of yourself as? Or is it still you are, you know, at a, at your core this private equity shop that does things in a way that has continuity with 89 or 97 or, or 2011? Well, no, I, 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 I'm a firm believer in, in private credit growth and its penetration and, and why, um, you know, sophisticated scale players, you know, who have the kind of resources that we have and, and the other big players that I'm um, sure you follow have, you know, those are players that I think, you know, are good at this, um, frankly, are matched in their funding uh, sources uh, in a way that I think allows them to, to look through cycles and, and, and credit cycles specifically. Um, now, by the way, that doesn't mean everybody that gets into it is going to be good at it. Like like a lot of things, there's a bit of a, you know, kind of gold rush here um, that's transpired where, you know, you're going to find a lot of those folks don't know what they're doing, don't have the scale, don't have the experience, haven't lived through you know, we've been in the credit business for 25 years, um, I think longer than anybody um, in, in the private credit business. Uh, and, and so from our standpoint, you know, that's a growth area and a really attractive area and will continue to penetrate the public credit business. But again, it's still small as a percentage. And I, I think there's a cyclical element to this as well. So while that secular trajectory is going to be there, the banks aren't going away, um, and we need the banks uh, as well for these large-scale uh, syndicated deals. And and frankly, we're seeing that come back right now. And you know, we just did a repricing this week where you know we had a private credit lender, and we were saying, look, we're going to go to the banks. Uh, you know, we think we can get a lower price. And oh, really? Of course, they oh. drop they drop their price like immediately because you know <laughs> they've they, they've been living in a little bit of a luxurious land, you know, uh, you know, for the last year and a half to two years where there's been no 
banking market. Um, but that's cyclical, right? So let's keep, you know, there is a secular trend, and it's going to be great, and, and I'm excited about it. And it's going to be healthy, I think, for the banking system. It's going to be healthy for private equity. I think it's going to be healthy for credit. Um, but there's also a cycle, and, and I think we're still at that cycle where uh, we, we haven't seen the kind of reemergence that we will see, I believe, in the next 12 to 24 months of banks coming back into this business. They need this business. They have an M&A business that's driven by their credit business, that's driven by their public equity business, that's driven by a sponsor business, and that ecosystem is not going away. I mean, is that the story of 2024 that, like, you know, it feels like over the past year, everything has been a bit, there is one way to do a deal. It is you find a couple of, of private credit shops you find some asset that is either under pressure to transact or has like some kind of portable capital structure or something. And it's like the path has been narrow. There has been no exit through IPO. Well, a few, but <laughs> difficult story. Uh, there has been no bank financing to kind of play off the private credit folks against. Like, is is the story of 24, like all of that moving back into, into equilibrium? I think it's certainly already moving that direction. I think the, the you know, how how... You know, coming out of the GFC, I don't know if you remember this, but it was like every six months, everybody said, oh, it's coming back, and then it would retreat. And then, it, oh, it's coming back, and then it would retreat. So so there are going to be stops and starts. I think there's currently a start right now because of the Fed pivot. You're seeing actually regular way commitments and syndication coming back into play for, for buyouts, high, high, high rates, but, but nevertheless – there, for the first time, particularly for public to privates, where you have this long duration between signing and closing, they need some form of stability about what the direction of rate travel will be. Otherwise, they're just going to put huge insurance premiums on on how they can flex those rates over the course of the signing to closing period. So, so that dysfunction, I think, will hopefully be worked out as 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 the Fed hopefully um, either stays or or improves uh, sort of the the rate rate actions that, that might happen in 24. Um, but when it was just going up and up and people didn't know how high, I, I think that's a really hard market for banks to participate in. Um, so my hope is that that will be the case, but it is reliant on that credit stability, that long-term credit stability of, of where, not, not short-term rates, by the way, but, but long-term rates sit. Um, and by the way, that's really important also for exit valuation because exit valuation is such a big driver, as we've talked about, um, knowing what you believe the sort of the long-term rate posture will be for something you're going to own for five to seven years, it's pretty important because it drives it drives exit exit multiples. Got it. So, is does it come down to something as crude as a more difficult year for private credit, or at least a more competitive year is a great year for private equity? Or I think it'd be. I think it, no. I think because two things drive, you know, private credit. One is just you know, great rate environments that are very attractive. They're as attractive as they've ever been. Um, and that remains uh, the case. I think the other one is just velocity, right? How many deals are out there? There's not that many in 23, um, you know, but I think in 24, if there's more deals out there, I think it'll allow for some healthy growth and competition, hopefully, in my mind, uh, between private credit and maybe uh, the emergence or reemergence of, of bank syndication market. Um, you know, there's a lot of money on the sidelines right now that wants to get into that, you know, syndicated market, um, you know, because rates are, are pretty pretty attractive. Um, and, and certainly if you get a high yield market working, you know, at, at these high rates, um, you know, those are pretty good investments for investors. I mean, that, you know, locking in a, you know, 10% piece of paper for, you know, for 10 years on a really good credit and high yield, that's, I don't know, that's pretty good. That's pretty good paper. Um, so I'm actually pretty constructive, um, you know, on private credit, even with the uh, reemergence of, 
of the syndicated market if that if that happens. Got it. Okay. And I think a good way to close this out and pull it together is, you know, you've talked a lot about the different directions of travel that we're seeing. It seems like 2024, maybe, you know, the kind of tap turns back on a little bit. But also, like you said, there have been some of these, you know, smaller, newer managers and different strategies that maybe it turns out didn't entirely know what they were doing. Or, you know, you kind of see some of the pressures at larger folks begin to work out. I mean, we haven't really seen anything that feels like a shakeout from this most recent cycle. We haven't seen any kind of like big changes of ownership. We haven't seen uh, any kind of like really feeling like someone is kind of pulling back or falling out of the hierarchy. I mean, do you think there is anything like that coming down the line, like any shakeup at kind of like any level of, of the industry? And I kind of wonder, does it, if there is any kind of, uh, I guess, weakness kind of lingering there um, at any level, is that something where you begin to see, I don't know, some kind of consolidation of managers or even, you know, let's say like an insurer or someone like that come in and try to forge some kind of new partnership? Well, I mean, this won't sound so so exciting as some of those of those uh, scenarios, but, you know, as we look at uh, sort of our 40-year history, you know, what's I think been uh, remarkable is that if you look at the top 20 players um, in every decade over that 40-year period, um, there are those that persist and there are new people that come to the ball. And I think the new people that come to the ball, um, sometimes they they stick and they persist, and then sometimes they retreat. They don't go out of business, by the way. Some have. Um, you know, we know the stories about that during during '99. But I think that you know, oftentimes they just get smaller, um, uh, and it takes a long time to really you know, purge a alt, alt manager or a private equity fund out of business. But but in terms of the top 20 players, I think you're right. The top 20 players who have persisted got bigger and bigger and better and better and actually, uh, you know, continue to advance forward. And I think that'll be the case um, in this next, uh, the next period. So I think the consolidation is just, is that group continuing to drive, you know, penetration and better practices at being really good at all alternative assets. And I, I think there will be people that it won't go away, but, you know, maybe won't get, you know, their fund size will get cut in half or, you know, you know, maybe they'll, um, you know, pivot towards a, a more narrow strategy. Um, and, and so I think that's the kind of consolidation. I, I don't see – and a lot of the low, you know, mid-market managers who don't do well, they, they will go out of business. But there's as many new that come up, you know, that go out. Um, and so I think it's, it's kind of a cottage industry still that way in the, in the main part. But, but I think the bigger players will get bigger. Got it. Bonus question. Do you think there is another big insurer tie-up down the road, or do you think that's that's still mostly a kind of story of uh, partnerships? I think it, I mean, look, I, I, I think it is likely to be partnerships. You know, I, you know, I think there's a lot of real commercial logic uh, for why um, we are asset managers, not underwriters. And, and, you know, not distributors of insurance projects, pro, uh, products. That's not to say we couldn't be, and certainly some are. Uh, but I think really what we're good at is managing alternative assets um, and, frankly, managing assets. Um, and the insurance industry, you know, writ large, is not that good at managing assets. Um, and, and, and I'm not saying that some of them are really good at it, but I'm just saying it is a very fragmented, very state-by-state -state business um, and globally as well, not not necessarily having the sophistication to manage assets the way, 
you know, firms like ours and others can. So I think that kind of do what you do well and then do that in partnership feels like a, a pretty good pretty good model that will continue to grow, you know. And and buying and being a big platform, you know, some of those platforms now are competing against the people they're trying to partner with and that that can get complicated. Got it. Well, thank you so much for your time, John, uh, and thank you for joining us on the exchange. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Oliver Taslick in London. Subscribe to The Exchange and our sibling podcast, The Views Room, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Catch up with more of our views at breakingviews.com and on the X social media site, where our handle is at breakingviews. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. To the heart of U.S. politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts. 